Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This episode is proudly sponsored by Integrity, your partner for life. Integrity recently launched an exclusive research paper to help advisors understand how to attract and retain new clients. They believe their role in the industry is bigger than just providing products. They want to help create a sustainable industry, educate clients, and support advisors personally in their business. You can get a copy of the report and learn more about Integrity if you visit integritylife.com.au forward slash xy. Welcome back to the XY Advisor Podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and today I'm joined by XY legend Nathan Fredley. G'day, Nathan. How are we going? Very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, good. All hyped up on caffeine, which is nice. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> we're recording this early in the morning, so we're all hyped up. Excellent. Now, <laughs> now uh, give, us, uh, give the uh, listeners a quick overview of you and your business at the moment. Yeah, sure. Um, for those that don't don't know me, Nathan Fradley, I run Lime Financial Planning. Um, we're based in Melbourne and in the Burbs, um, although I have a second location in the People's Republic of Northcote now, which is where I live, which is great. Um, and yeah, I mainly focus on retirement planning, aged care, um, but with a huge push into ethical investments. If any of you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll know that I nag everyone every day about climate change. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's that's certainly authentically you. That's uh, absolutely you. So, t- tell us about your uh, your journey. How did you get into financial advice? Um, so, I uh, actually, when I was at uni, I had two subject conveners: one in the financial planning space, and one in the, I suppose, investment space. And they were sort of working with both of them at different things. And the investment convener actually lined me up an honors placement. So I was to it was a paid placement, doing honors, go down the academia route. I think the, the subject was Fibonacci sequence on the Singapore Stock Exchange or something from memory. Yeah. Of course. And yeah, like just, yeah, no worries. And that was kind of, it was really intriguing. I was really into, I suppose, the the academia of finance and the, and the hard numbers and Black Shoals and all that sort of fun stuff. And the other one said to me, what are you doing? You're a people person. Go speak with people. Yes, you will lose track of who people are, what they do. The zeros on the screen will stop meaning any, you know, they'll mean nothing to you anymore. So I finished, well, before I finished uni, I ended up getting a job in a call center booking financial planning appointments, you know, which is a complete digression from the the prestige of academia and did that for a couple of months and then applied on a whim for a job at NAB and was brought on as the uh, the wild card, I suppose you'd call it, placement in the in that, that program. And that was a, like a 12-week program. Um, with a deep dive training in, into all, all aspects of financial planning and then sort of set out on the world to sell uh, MLC products as was the style of the time. <laughs> and, um, but it was actually an amazing, the, the, the training itself was all about people. It was never about product. The product was, it just, you know, that was the only product you could use, but it didn't matter because we were focusing on people. And I think that sort of set me on a, I had a lot of really good mentors early, early on in the piece. Yeah. You know, it, in the insurance side of things, if anyone knows Luke Ashby, um, he, he probably listens. So shout out to him. 
and Chris Joyner, I think he's over at Industry Funds now, but they were two huge mentors of mine very, very early on in the piece that um, I suppose set me on that journey. And um, yeah, so did that, so we did like this mobile role for 18 months and went out to, you know, placed across branches and then I got offered a spot out in queue as a senior planner after about two and a half, three years. So I went out there and at that point I knew I couldn't stay at the bank. It was, it was the environment that I felt very uh, shoehorned, I suppose you'd call it. Um, yeah, you could only deal with you know, MLC products. It was only certain things. Um, and it was just, it was a, yeah, I had to get out, I had to, to do it right. So I spent sort of the next 18 months upskilling myself and um, and uh, working a lot on self-managed super fund, a little bit of aged care and that sort of stuff. And then exited and sub-licensed under another planner. And then this was back when the CFP and uh, C, what's the AFA one? C- uh, FCHFP. Yeah. yeah, I've got that. And I forget what it is. Um, <laughs> when they were kind of the standard of, of education and the guy who ran that practice decided he didn't want to sort of do that anymore. So three months after being self-licensed under him, he exited the industry. And so I bought that practice with my business partner now, who was a mortgage broker that did a lot of work with him. So we took that over and spent the next, oh, it's been six years now, um, rebuilding it from the ground up from what was a very transactional based uh, business into a very holistic and people purpose orientated approach. Wow, fantastic! And that uh, that's one heck of a journey. I love the way that fa- that you called yourself a senior senior financial planner uh, two and a half years in, and uh, and now sometime after that, are you still senior? Do you still call yourself senior, or are you now uh, back to yeah. junior? How, how, where, did, where, where did the journey take you? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Um, at 32, I don't know. Is, am I senior now? Oh, I was, so I was senior. 25 when I was a senior planner at uh, at NAB. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah so I was. I think it was 21 when I got when I got authorized. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that was just the way you'd give people, or the the banks might give people confidence in your standing within, you know, your license within their their brand. I suppose. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We're not here to knock. Uh, we're not here to knock an institution. That's all good. So you're, um, yeah, and and a lot of the work you do now, you mentioned holistic. You mentioned, um, uh, you know, ethical. Um, the side of things you love to you love to help people. You love to get really deep and and a little analytical into what their needs are, their preferences are, all those types of things, which we'll probably go to a bit more, a bit more into the uh, the end of this podcast. But one of the things I wanted to um, bring up really quite early in the podcast and talk a lot about was some of the work you're doing with the XY community. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more on what I'm talking about? Um, apart from being a, a serial pest and commenter on the platform, I, I think the XY ethics committee is, is probably what you're referring to there and is a little... Um, brainchild of mine and then sort of fleshed out and grown with Andrew Lane, Michael Miller and the wonderful M that came about. I was last year, my wife, um, who's a lawyer, um, a case she was working on went to the law Institute of Victoria's ethics committee and they thought they were fine in terms of what they were doing. It's a land law case. It was nothing nefarious, Um, but they'd previously worked on a case close by and it was a similar nature. So the precedent being relied on was something that they'd previously been involved in. And so they were pulled up to the ethics committee and the committee determined that they couldn't take that case. Now, they were pretty adamant that they could. And then when they found that out, they were like, oh, okay, cool. And they moved on. So They formed so, the client and, and that was it. So I'm just, I'm just, I'll go back a step. Your wife had a case and they were looking at taking it on 
And then so they went, oh, we'll just check this. So they, they voluntarily submitted the case to the ethics committee. Yep. yep. Someone said to them, are you sure you should do this? And they were like, mm, we'll take it ourselves and find out. Yep. And that when, it, when it wasn't looking to take it on, they were halfway through it. They were, they'd done work mm. and and then at that point realised, taken it to the ethics committee. The ethics committee determined they shouldn't take on that case and they were like, okay, and moved on and informed the client, did the whole thing, passed it on to another professional who ran that file and that was it. And I was just blown away by, I suppose, the professionalism and and standing of, and respect one to the, the committee itself, but also um, of the professionals to say, okay, if, if a group of my peers have just determined that this is not appropriate, then that's what I'll do. And so I had a quick chat to my licensee um, about the idea. Um, and I think they had sort of too much on their plate. And then I spoke to Emma about it. And I said, look, I think this is something that we could do from, from the bottom up. I think no licensee involvement, no, um, you know, association involvement and a pure grassroots, um, which is her favorite word, uh, grassroots approach to, to this committee. Um, but um, I don't think it's now's the time to work on it. I've got too much else on myself. Let's park it um, to the side um, or as affectionately known throughout people who know me as a tennis ball. Um, if I am the proverbial Labrador with all the tennis balls in my mouth. So we put that tennis ball on the shelf and then um, she gave me a call earlier this year and she'd been chatting to Andrew Lane and the subject had come up and she said, do you want to get this going? And I was like, Absolutely. Uh, at this point in time, my ethics committee was Michael Miller. Um, if I ever had a question around what I needed to do, I went to him um, or a few other advisors I know in the community. So I gave him a call and said, hey, do you want to take part in this as well? And we started that conversation. So through the beauty of video meetings, we had a couple of meetings and sort of just fleshed out what it was we wanted it to look like. How is it going to be approached? Um, how do we get it started? I think there's a lot of questions we still want to answer um, around procedure and policy and formality, but we wanted to just get it out there in the community and that minimal viable product, as it were, um, so that we could just get a feel for what kind of help people wanted and, and really just, yeah, start something. Yeah, so this is really interesting because you there's obviously a precedent, the the law societies of the different states, and uh, it, could, it could just as well easily be a national committee if, if uh, the, law, the law societies ever decided to do that. Um, but uh, look, it's a, it's, a, it's a precedent, it's there, it's being used by another profession, and as we develop, and we are, you know, we say we're a profession, and we are, but... Um, but you know, why not learn from other professions? So you've taken that model, uh, I guess, if you like, and said, well, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We'll just do what they do. Is that that what you're doing? Basically. Yeah. It was completely inspired by Law Institute of Victoria. That's, um, to the point where, when we were forming what we wanted it to look like, we pulled up their structure and said, how do they approach this? Where do they see their authority? Um, where do they see their authority end? Um, what do they do and what do they not do? And then how can we apply that into our own industry, looking at our code of ethics um, and fitting in with the world that we have around us? Because we are much more regulated than the, the law, I suppose, profession. They are a lot more self-regulated. In fact, their entire uh, law societies and what have you are all sort of self-created. So how do we fit that in within FASEA, within uh, and the code, within our individual licensees and licensee policy, within the Corporations Act and all the other um, bits of legislation we comply to and and where is the space that we can really add value and then in the same token using what we already had within the xy infrastructure as well and saying well this is something that we'd want to access the best people we can in the country 
we don't want to all be in the same room at the same time with a minute of meeting and someone jotting things down and, da, 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 and they're meeting once a week or anything like that. We're all busy people. You know, a lot of them are self-employed or trying to build their careers. So how do we do that in a way that is facilitative to that using modern technology? And it was simple. We already had it. It was right there. So M set up a private group where the determinations are posted into. And like anywhere else in XY, all of the members will comment and contribute to that conversation. We have timestamps. We have who said what. It's all very, very formal from that perspective. But it means that if someone likes to do things first thing in the morning, they can jump on and comment first thing in the morning. If someone's you know, in and out during the day, they can comment during the day. If someone likes to do it before bed and really get themselves fired up, by all means, they can do that. Um, and that allows us to make sure everyone gets a chance to contribute um, as well as not limiting people on their capacity to be a, a part of the group because of, you know, what else they're doing outside of the community. Yep. So there's, there's a lot of different aspects to this and we'll probably uncover if you're interested in the way you said some people want to, um, you know, check out a, an ethical determination just before they go to bed. Um, certainly help them sleep at night. So, so, uh, so let's, let's go through the, um, let's start with the, the advisors. If somebody wants to like, what's, how would somebody use it? What's the what's the purpose of somebody using it um, from an advice point of view? I've got a case. I've got an, an idea. How am I going to go about it? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, let's say uh, something comes or a file comes across their desk. So the the sample file or the sample example we used for our application was actually taken part in from uh, something that was commented on XY, which had previously while we were developing the committee, three separate comments came up on XY that would have been perfect cases for the for the committee so something comes up and says you know i've got a client um we, we're working on their they've just inherited some money um and we're working on their file and it looks like they've had a hundred thousand dollars that was never declared to to centrelink beforehand and with this new inheritance they're going to lose their pension how do i handle this and that was the example that we we provided so that that sort of situation they've met that client they've started going through everything they're going through the fact finder all of a sudden they get that feeling in the back of their back of their throat that says Something's not right here. I have to make a decision. Usually what they would do is probably think about it. Maybe speak to their spouse, ring one of their colleagues, um, maybe post it on XY, which we've seen before, and sort of just go off that, ring their licensee potentially. What we would encourage is that they jump straight on the, the designated page on the XY website and basically fill that information in. Tell us the background. Tell us the, you know, the time frame at which you'd need a response by. Ideally, we want at least seven days to give everyone a chance to contribute. If you need a response back that day and we need to pull everyone in quickly, we can do that. Um, although we've discussed the idea of uh, immediate responses requiring some form of donation to a charity of some description as a bit of payment for everyone's time, but we haven't determined what to do there yet. So you jump on there, you put your determination or your, your questions in there. You talk about what, why it's a dilemma. So this is a situation and here's why I'm stuck. Here's where I haven't been able to come to that conclusion um, and what I'm considering as my options at this point. That's all we need to know. I mean, as much detail, it helps, but concise, um, accurate information is also useful. No no personal information, no confidential information. We don't need to know anything about the client's name and date of birth, or maybe date of birth might be, might be relevant, but age is probably more. Um, that comes through to us, and then we can discuss what it is about that that um, is the situation. So we'll, we'll directly comment on, for example, the code. So in the case of the um, determination for um, the application process um, that was pretty clear cut standard one don't circumvent the law you you know help your client facilitate their disclosure of that information to um to centrelink that's fine 
But what we also want to be able to do outside of that is then talk to not just the direct uh, standard and say, yes, right or wrong, but also how do you handle that from a client perspective? How do you engage the client to explain that process, to talk them through um, how best to to not spook them? You walk in there and go, well, you've been fortunate. We've got to report you. That's not going to help anyone. You're still working with your client. Um, that You've still got their best interest at heart. So how do you manage that? And then what else is to consider? The problem here is the symptom is they're, you know, they've got to disclose something to Centrelink and they're, they're going to have to repack some, repay some um, age pension. But the actual underlying issue is once they inherit this money and repay that money, then what? They no longer have the security of that age pension income that they're so used to. They've lost their concession card. So their, their, feet, their, their costs have gone up in their day-to-day life. And now they're completely self-funded. So how do we then meet that? And so we're not going to sit there and go, oh, you should you know, invest the money like this and da-da-da. But we'll, we'll raise those questions around, find out information about this, this, and this. What's their health like? Is there any aged care concerns? Have they got any broader or, or other circumstances um, that you need to consider? How are they meeting their, their income needs? All those sorts of things. And then sort of providing that back. And we're hoping that through that process, um, as a community, we're going to get better and better at identifying those broader things. Um, identifying the broader needs, having better conversations with clients and building libraries really of determinations that, that are become best practice that can be used. And I know the, the Law Institute of Victoria's determinations have actually been used in court and have been relied on. Um, and, and, the, and it's been determined that because a group of peers with the right information have said, this is the right way that you've, you've done your effort. You've gone and found out how best to handle this. You've not just ignored it. You've not acted in your own best interest. You've actually gone and said, how should I do this? And gone through that process. And that for itself speaks volumes. So that's how we would encourage. If you get if you get a dilemma, if you're not sure, big or small, related to a client file, related to something at work, we have had a dilemma come through, which we've just gone back for some more information on by a power planner who's really concerned about the, the standard of work they're being given, that they keep getting at, you know, clients coming in who have got really no interest or at least no notable interest in their investments. They're in an industry fund and they're being put in more expensive wrap products consistently. It's the same portfolio every time. And so they're like, what do I do here? I'm not the advisor. So it's not my job, but I don't think this is necessarily right. So um, there, there's there's all sorts of circumstances where you know, we can tap into each other as an industry and and to go back to that on a grassroots approach um, really raise that standard. Yeah, there are so many different parts to this. Now, I wanted to, uh, my next question was going to be about those determinations and, and publishing of those determinations, I guess. that I'm, I'm assuming there's going to be some sort of an outcome and then that uh, that's, might be broadcast within the within the community. Um, also, you know, if you, as you said, a library for people to be able to search for determinations. Absolutely. So we'll when we first do it, we'll send it back to the advisor who submitted it to us, assuming that they've not done it anonymously, which is an option. Um, so they'll see it before everyone else will. Um, then we will post it up in the actual uh, ethics committee group, which everyone can subscribe to. And then within that group, there's a library. So we have a separate area of determinations, which will, as we build that library, we'll start collect, collating into the different um, areas of advice. So there's both a determination library as a resource, there's the group, and then we'll also share those posts to the main page as well. So they'll be fairly prominent. And I think as as they start coming in more and more, people will start identifying situations where they themselves might have a, a case to submit and that will start building that momentum. Yeah, very interesting. So look, um, one of the areas I wanted to dive into uh, is the conversation around, you know, obviously dilemmas are created 
when there's some sort of conflict, and it doesn't have to be just conflict of, um, uh, you know, self-involvement. It could be a conflict between what uh, they're doing with regards to their PI insurers or their or their licensee standards or compliance um, with what they feel is the right thing to do, um, as in the right thing to do, I guess. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, Huria, um, in our first meeting the other day, actually said "There's you can do something that is ethical but not compliant, and you can do something that is compliant but not ethical. And I think that really nailed the scope of what we're trying to do here. We're, we're com- commenting on the ethical situation, um, but from a broader advice perspective. So we're not involving ourselves in licensee matters. Um, if a licensee is determined that they're going to hold a certain standard or a certain approach, and we don't think that's right, so be it. But we do, we do believe that the code of ethics sits above that. And in fact, I'm pretty sure in one of the explanatory statement lines, it says, if an investment that is in the best interest of your client is not on your APL, you should seek approval to use it because it's in the best interest of your client. So that fairly substantially says, hey, you know, licensee standards aren't the be all and end all. The code is, uh, well, your client is really. So I think in that instance, we're going to focus on that ethical side of things. Um, the compliance side is a completely different matter. Um, although there will be there is some crossover, absolutely. I think um, it's it's an entire minefield and probably another a podcast that we could discuss different cases for about three and a half hours, Joe Rogan style, if we really want to dive into it. <laughs> yeah, certainly there's going to be a lot of uh, that, that dilemma is still going to be there, I guess, even after the t- determinations, aren't they? They're going to be, well, ethically, this is what I say I've got to do. And as the advice provider, um, I'm obviously re- you know required to do this, this, and this. Um, but then I've got other you know, compliance issues that I've got to deal with, which is separate, which I might have to have some serious conversations with my licensing about. Um, yeah. And, and maybe you can take that determination back to your licensee and say, look, I know you guys you know, exist within your your constraints, but I've actually sought, you know, advice from the broader community. And here is some, some other opinions from other advisors and non-advisors, um, other professionals, other experts um, to assist in that. And, and potentially we could see, you know, they're raising the standard to licensee level as well as, as we become more interconnected and less siloed which between licensees, which we do know is definitely a thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There are, there are different rules and regulations out there depending on who you're with. That's, there's, uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, and so as we go uh, through this, I want to talk about um, some of the concepts that will come up, I think, a lot in the difference between them. I, mean, I think a lot of financial services product uh, products are pulled based product. So they're based on numbers and stats over large groups, a lot of funds, etc. you know, like large funds are doing these things. Uh, insurance is obviously a, a pooled product. Um, what's in the best interest of all of the, uh, the members of that pool may not necessarily be what's in the best interest of one individual in the pool. And so when we talk about uh, representing your client and, and the ethical di- for, um, dilemma for the client, it could actually be different for the group than the client. Absolutely. I think super funds are struggling with that concept entirely at the moment. A number of them will say, you know, we're doing this, this and this for climate change. But one of our key standards is choice. You know, we're stewards of your money. We're out there doing this and this. We have the option for you to invest in a more sustainable or ethical manner. But you have choice because we can't meet those standards for everyone. I think that's a real challenge for advisors as well. I think one of the, I suppose, key Okay, a couple of the key aspects of the code, you know, determining what's in the best interest of your client from a strategic and from a product perspective, standard two and five are, are really key because just simply asking, for example, on that ethical advice front, you know, do you have any ethical preferences? 
is is the equivalent of being at a bar and or at a restaurant and someone coming and saying, "Oh, would you like a drink?" It's like, yeah, I mean, I'd love one, but what do you have? I don't know. Do you do you sell beer here? What kind of beer do you have? Have I ever had beer before? Um, I don't know what exists. Maybe you've got some exotic cocktail that I'm really gonna like. That's the same kind of thing. I think as advisors, we need to have far far more robust conversations around ethical preferences and also product preferences as well. You know, there was, I was in a session with M back at the start of May um, where we talked a bit about platforms and M and Rob um, and how you, what's the difference between say a platform industry fund and when is that appropriate and not. I think these are all these areas of preferences. Obviously I've got a substantial interest in the ethical advice, um, you know, sustainable investment, responsible investment area of that. But I think that's a that's a real challenge, and probably I've got a solution for that as well. So I'm probably overtly biased on that basis as well. Well, well I do want to. Know, I would, I'm going to ask you about that solution uh, in a minute. But before we get there, I want to I want to um, tackle into this uh, this conversation around um, groups versus individuals for a little bit more, if I can. Um, mm. When it comes to say insurance products, uh, insurance products are obviously based on uh, or insurance books, if you like, or, or companies are very very based on the concept of. Um, you know, pulling everyone together and um, healthy lives and non-healthy lives. Um, from an individual basis, the advisors definitely uh, focused on the individual client and helping those individual clients. And, and probably ethically, they've got, got their entire client base to consider as well as clients um, when they're looking at this. But um, how, do, how do, you know, obviously advisors have been doing a great job and helping their individual clients and reviewing them regularly. But that obviously from an ethical point of view, and from an ethical point of view, from the product uh, manufacturer's point of view, also creates some problems for the um, for insurance books because it kind of goes against it brings that individualization back, which goes against the concept of pooling, which is detrimental to the concept of pooling and the concept of insurance itself. I think that's a really interesting and timely topic with the nature of the Apple review at the moment. I think if you look at what's happening to insurance products and the dilution of definitions and and the conversations that I'm sure everyone's been having over the last few weeks um, with BT's increase, with AIA's increase, with TAL's increase, with one parts increase, and with the unannounced increases that are probably to come from the other insurers. I think that it's such a hard topic because for that individual who you have a best interest for, whose insurance premiums have just gone up 72.5%, for an agreed value age 65 policy, potentially for an amount or a benefit they themselves wouldn't be able to claim for anymore because their income may have come down you want them to have the best possible cover you want them to know that if they actually you know you probably set it up for that matter for if they actually couldn't work due to illness or injury they could get the maximum amount but at the same time the fact that they're in that situation and they're getting paid a higher amount that they potentially have been earning under their pre-disability capacity that means the premiums are going to are going up unsustainably. To to use um, BT in his example, in the three two three years prior to their most recent increase, they had two ten percent increases. That's a doubling in premiums. So it's all well and good to have better definitions, and it's all well and good to have you know age sixty five policies and all those sorts of things. But at the same time, you're getting a hundred percent increase in in premiums over three years because it's unsustainable. That in itself is it is not going to help anyone because you're having insurers lose a lot of money. If insurers mm. lose a lot of money, they're not going to pay out as many claims. There's that There's that whole individual versus group aspect that's really mm. conflicted. In that I think it's conflicted because if you, if you end up with one um, person in the group getting a much better, let's say, deal out of it, 
then it means that other people in the group are getting the worst deal, right? You, you can't just, the money's got to come from somewhere. It comes from the other mm. people in the group. So um, by by uh, by looking after clients very well and you know giving them a great deal, if you like, out of the group, um, then they end up other people in the group end up losing. So it's it's a very interesting. Um, I think it's a it's a dilemma for you know all this review that's happening. Um, not just for the advisor's decision because the advisors have to do what they have to do, but it's an interesting dilemma from the government point of view. Generally, generally when they make legislation, they go, there'll be some winners, some losers, but overall the, there'll be more wins than lose. Whereas to me, this seems like the way it's been set up, there's going to be more losing than winning, if that makes sense. Yeah, what I'm most concerned about in, in that capacity is to talk about the group again, is that there's going to be a lot of clients who can't go elsewhere. Yes. They can't go to more sustainable insurance products. They're unable to. They've had yep. their policy for a long time. They may be on set premiums um, and they're copying these increases and then they have no capacity to change insurer. So all of a sudden, they're now, all the healthy people leave the pool and move to these new uh, cheaper products. The premiums skyrocket and either they become uninsured yep. or they pay the premium. And that's... I mean, it, ha- it happens a lot with certain insurers that used siloing of books, um, but you know, as an industry-wide phenomenon, I think that's going to result in a, a huge amount of underinsurance. Yes. Um, combine that with the the loss of distribution that we have seen over the last couple of years, you know, falling away. The the average value of insurance premium has gone up, but the you know that just means that people at the lower level are just not getting cover. Yeah, that's going to create a massive, massive issue. And I think that in itself undermines the entire you know capacity. And again, another conflict of the, the yeah. single versus the the group. Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, I think there's some big ethical dilemmas in there when it comes to that. But obviously, your group uh, and we'll introduce the group in a second um, is, is all around the individual determinations for financial advisors. Absolutely. Although interestingly, I have had a a, a conversation. I won't give too much away because they're still deciding whether or not they ask. But this was a private email where someone had a claim and their question was around whether or not that claim, they knew that person outside of their professional capacity and it was an income protection claim and they've been on it for some time. So whether or not that claim was actually worth, with what responsibility they had to report that person's um, lifestyle um, outside of that claim versus what they've been reporting to the insurer. So, you know, I think that in itself falls into this entire pool mm. of um of the situation because that's the individual again against the pool. You know, you want to take care of the individual, but is the pool detrimental and is that detrimental for all my other clients? Yes, that's an interesting one again, but you're absolutely right. That's an ethical dilemma. And and, and I guess one of the, some of the precedents and you mentioned back the law society, I'm there. There, there has to be a lot of determinations already that you guys can work off from the law society because I guarantee somebody may have, I don't know, say committed a crime and then told the lawyer they'd committed a crime but asked them to defend them, which would be a similar ethical dilemma. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think it necessarily – I think there's – and I'm not a, I'm not the lawyer, and I probably have to ask my wife on this one, but I'm fairly sure there's pretty substantive um, rules around that. If someone admits that, they've effectively – you know, I think they, there's the aspect of justice that comes into the lawyer's world mm-hmm. where everyone deserves justice, uh, yeah. whether whether they're guilty or not. But I'm sure there's a lawyer in here going, that's the simplest thing ever, Nathan. Yeah. But I'm not a lawyer. Oh, so well, you, they'll, they'll, they'll be all over you on LinkedIn as soon as, you, uh, <laughs> as, soon as they hear this. Um, very good. Now, let's tell us about the committee. Um, how did people apply to it and, uh, and who's on the committee? Yeah, so with the, with the committee, we had um, basically that application form that what, how would you handle this case from a client advice and ethics perspective were the questions we asked. 
um, we had equal number of male and female applicants, which we were absolutely blown away by, given that 20% of the industry um, or at least the um, licensed industry is female. To have that we were, was fantastic. The caliber was amazing and the variation in responses. We had a number of people who really got stuck on the which standard of ethic it was, which standard it fell to. Um, but the answers that really stood out saw more than just, yes, you have to report this to Centrelink, like obviously. Um, but here are the other concerns, the other standards that come up. Um, you know, one person raised the competence standard. If you're not sure what to do here, are you the right person to work with this client? Um, you know, or should you be either working with another advisor to help you ensure competence or referring out? Um, you know, some referred to the broader circumstances around, um, you know, the income requirements in retirement, the aged care stuff, all that. So that's really where we want to get to from a standard advice perspective. And the people that did that really stood out. Um, and then the why, why do you think you'd be a good fit to committee was the other question there. So we wanted to see, a, we wanted a variety of mindsets. We didn't want the same person um, repeatedly. In fact, one person that applied, I thought gave a, an amazing answer, but they gave my answer, um, which was rightly pointed out. We already have a Nathan, so we don't need another Nathan, which was really disappointing for me and them, I'm sure. But um you know, that, that's 100% right. We didn't want the same people saying the same things. We actually wanted that diverse range. So we also asked questions around whether or not they've done the exam and the ethics unit. It wasn't a bare minimum, but we wanted to make sure that at least using that as a base understanding of the code. Um, we had a number of people who weren't advisors apply um, from different sectors. So Huria um, is one. So many people will know her through her exam, exam prep and her knowledge of, of the code. So she applied at the last minute, which we were very glad about because we were hoping she would. Um, and her application was excellent. And, and she's on there. She's not an advisor, but she's got a great understanding. There's obviously myself, Andrew Lane, from an insurance perspective. He's got a huge background as that of the a long career in insurance. Michael Miller wrote the book on, on ethical matters when it comes to, literally wrote a book, it's coming out very soon. They should plug Michael that when it eventually gets published. So he's done a lot of work with AFCA determinations. So he sort of has a good background in that section, also very technical in aged care and Centrelink. We've got Morgan from Queensland, just a brilliant application, really well considered and also a, a broad background in what um, she has done previously, which brings a lot more variety, I suppose, to the table. Um, Alistair Sutherland, he's actually an accountant um, who is going to be licensed as an advisor. In fact, probably at the time of, of publishing this podcast, he will have his license. Great SMSF knowledge, very technical, and I think a great addition. We've got uh, Erica Cummins from Regional Vic. So we also tried to look at regional and metro cases as well to try and get a bit of a different perspective from that from that angle. Em's decided not to take part in the committee. She's going to facilitate, but she's not going to include herself in any determinations. And we've got Hoy, um, who um, has is, runs a self-license, has a broad background in, in compliance as well. And um, it is actually in, in chats with um, ASIC as well. I uh, saw her at a roundtable recently, which is always entertaining to wave at someone across a Zoom meeting um, when talking about cost of advice. So she's sort of doing a lot of great work outside of that. So hugely diverse team, great backgrounds and a great mix of individuals um, and very hard decision, actually. We had some outstanding applications, some very prominent people in the advice industry applied as well. So we we're actually really glad that a number of these people um, aren't that prominent and hopefully that will give them a real chance to, to show the advice profession as a whole who they are, but what they can do. And, and we think they're all pretty great. So very much looking forward to working with them. 
Yeah, fantastic. And uh, how is that committee going to grow or shrink over time, I guess? If you've got lots of determinations, you might need more people eventually. Yeah, that was actually a really tricky part is determining how many people we should have. Um, you know, there's the old too many cooks sort of mantra. We were looking at between eight and 10 and we decided to settle on eight because it's easier to add than to kick people out. Um, so initially, we'll see how that runs. I'll probably write most of the determinations in the first part. And then as that starts flowing and everyone gets a feel for the group and how we do things, then everyone will take it in turns. And if we find that we're getting a lot of questions coming in, if we find that there's gaps in our knowledge base that we need to fill, we'll then reach out to the past applicants who have expressed interest in joining if the opportunity comes available um, or potentially, you know, advertise again and open it up again as it's more established, more people know about it and maybe more people want to take part knowing what it's all about. Um, or able to take part where they couldn't previously. I know I spoke to a number of people who wanted to apply um, that had a, either too much on their plate or had promised themselves no extracurricular activities um, and they wanted to focus on their business at that point in time, which is perfectly understandable. So, yeah, I think we're just going to wait and see how it evolves and and where it can go from here. We think it's going to be pretty great, but it might not. it might take a form that we didn't even know could have existed when we started. Yep, fantastic. Well, congratulations. And if any uh, if any advisors want to throw some um, ethical dilemmas at you, um, check out the uh, the XY Ethics Committee uh, on the app, or uh, or if, if you want to reach out to uh, yourself or M or send you an email or whatever it might be. What's the best way for somebody to say get hold of you if they're thinking of us putting something in? Uh, LinkedIn is easy. Email is fine as well. It's Nathan at lineFinancial.com.au or find me on the XY platform and, and send me a message that way but linkedin is probably the easiest way for anyone to contact me if they need to fantastic now um we talked about the concept earlier of um preferences and um asking you know a client some deeper questions around you know their their exact preferences when it comes to you know the the esg conversation which is obviously a a a very nice way um of saying you know ethical investment funds or but it's also a very big umbrella or a large group of things and and really uh you know sort of like as you mentioned before it's like a, it's a drink not exactly what type of drink do you want to go into a bit more depth about how and and, and what people can be thinking about with that it's a challenge i've had over the the years in the ethical space i think my first ethical responsible investment clients said i would like this and and we sort of grew from that basis i think when you're starting to have conversations with people that you don't that don't know that's an option it becomes very tricky. So I've, I think RIA, the Responsible Investment Association of Australia, have a great fact-finding tool and a lot of good resources on there. So that's more of a checkbox exercise. Is there anything you would like to avoid, invest more in, or you're neutral on? Um, but it can be, it can feel very unnatural to sit there and just fill out a checkbox. Um, I've, I, I often have a conversation around the concept of the beneficiary of an investment. So when you're investing traditionally in advice, you're investing for a goal. Um, with a particular growth or income orientation and a time frame, And that will deem the characteristics of the investment um, for the beneficiary being you as an individual. Uh, what we're able to do now that we've never been able to do before purely on a product availability basis for retail investors is invest for the benefit of others as well with seemingly no loss to your own benefit. So you can invest with for the same return, but also creating a social um, a quantifiable social benefit or social return as well, um, whether that be through impact exclusionary, you know, all that kind of thing. So I think that conversation is, is a way to introduce it to, to a client and say, this is how we're going to invest for your goal of retirement. 
But did you know you can also achieve that goal and have a greater social benefit? Would you? Is that something you want to explore? Uh, I know at the start of the year, I work with some 75-year-old clients from Stoke-on-Trent. Uh, Stoke-on-Trent's in the Midlands of the UK. Um, I think it's a headbutt capital of the world. I can say that because my family's from Stoke. And they're super, super lovely. Been in the country for you know, 40-something years, still have thick Stoke accents. Not necessarily the kind of people that on face value you would categorize as ethical investors. And having that conversation, it turned out they actually had very strong values around helping everyone. And to, to quote the, the client, um, you said, we've just got to take care of each other better. And if we can do that in a variety of ways, we'd love to. And so they ended up with a with a, a dark green portfolio, I would call it. Um, and they were very, very happy with that and, and loved the intricacies of it and, and how it came out. So I think, you know, what you'll what you'll very quickly discover is if returns are taken off the table, which most research is showing that ethical investing returns the same or better than non, then returns are taken off the table. People will absolutely want to do this kind of thing. The challenge is where do you go next, especially as an advisor? I've had a number of conversations with other advisors who are single ARs in a practice that just don't have the time to spend researching and diving into this stuff. So there's resources in Market Forces, their website for researching super funds and their ASX 300 um, allocation or how aligned to the Paris Accord it is. Responsible Returns is run by RIA and that has a lot of funds that have paid to be analysed and accredited. Um, and then there's also My New Baby Oh, also Leaf Ratings by um, the Ethical Advisor Co-op is another great resource as well. And then there's there's uh, mine and my wife's new business, which is called Ethos. And we're really just trying to solve that problem of firstly, how do you have that conversation with your client in the first place? And then how do you quantify that? And then using that data, how do you then provide a solution that's a portfolio that meets that need? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go into that in a minute. I just, I really like the conversation that you get into around values, um, preferences, values, um, ethics, those sorts of things. And the, uh, I love, I love, you know, talking about the, the fact that I think that the value of advice is determined by the client. And you don't really know if your advice is providing true value until you understand what your client's values are. And I really like this as a lead. That's a lead way into the conversation around. So, so we need to find out what you value in the way of different types of, you know, companies in the world, how they act and how they behave ethically. And then you can then determine what their, um, you know, what the outcome will be of that. So I like this way that, that this starts with the client's values and then works through to, okay, well, that's great. Now that we know these things about you, we can then come up with, you know, utilizing strategies and therefore product at the end of it off the back of their values and therefore the, the advice is going to be valued by them a lot more. It's, it's, it's way less around returns. I think if you even go a few steps back um, to include this in an, any, any normal conversation, when you're having a, a client conversation, you're talking about what's important to them. You know, a great conversation focuses on purpose um, and you're using purpose to, to build goals, but goals are just a framework around how to achieve that purpose of who they want to be and what they want to do. And so things like the value of you know their, their children or grandchildren and who they are to them or their family as a whole, what they do in, in society, what they do for work, um, what their exercise and diet regimes like, all these little things can give you broader indicators into who they are, but also who they're not being. I think that comes out quite commonly as well when you're talking to someone about what's important to them, but where they're stuck. Um, if they're in a job that they're stressed, but they're doing it because they need to earn some extra money. Um, because they want to achieve that goal, but really they're unhappy. How as an advisor can we give them the power to eventually leave that job that they're unhappy to pursue something that makes them happy, but with a sense of financial security? 
you know, a lot of the, the conversation I talk about with all uh, clients, but it's just sort of a retiree conversation. Um, I stole from a, a mental health model that I saw at a presentation once. And so it focuses on, it's a bit of adapted, but my version focuses on six areas of fulfillment. So the first one that we would talk in financial planning is financial security. Now that can either be achieved from work at current, but also as you approach retirement from the knowledge that you've gotten enough money to continue you know, living the life you want to live. But then there's the other things that we often get from work or from our broader life. So things like meaningful social interaction, which is not socialization necessarily because everyone's different. My meaningful social interaction is being surrounded by a lot of people and having lots of conversation. My wife's meaningful social interaction is you know, herself and three others um, and a couple of bottles of wine. So everyone has a different desire from that perspective. I think another important area is, is personal development or self-actualization. So the pursuing value of what's important to you in constant development. I think, you know, for some people having hobbies and doing those sorts of things is really important, but a lot of people get that accidentally. They, they go to work and they put out fires and they come home and they go, Oh, that thing happened to me today, but, but they overcame it. So that gives them a sense of, um, I suppose, self-esteem. You know, they might spend time with their kids and help their kids with their homework and their kids overcome something that they're challenged with. And that will give them a sense of self-esteem. When we retired or in general in life, we need to fulfill that. And often we find when people stop work, they lose that, uh, I suppose, automatic version of that that they've been having for 40 years. Work has supplied them with socialization and, and purpose for 40 years and all of a sudden they've lost it. So I think diving into what can deliver those sorts of things outside of work is really important. The other areas are routine. I think everyone found in COVID, when you lose your routine, all of a sudden the rest of your life starts to fall away as well. Um, work and a reason to get out of bed and, and get out of the house for a certain time, get the train you need to get, et cetera, gives you that routine and that can help structure the rest of your day. Health and fitness, again, during COVID, I think that was exposed massively. You know, losing the the regularity of that routine and going to the gym and you know not being able to socialize you know go for long you know so you know people a lot of people started doing more healthy and, and fitness orientated things in walking and things like that um, but also some people started eating more Uber Eats so I think um, health and fitness becomes an important part um, acknowledgement and appreciation I think is a, is sort of a more wishy washy version but you know often at the end of a big long week you sit down you go how good was that you know work Christmas parties you sit down and go look what we achieved this year um, those sorts of things often fall away. Um, when work stops and retirement, these are all things that create value for people um, that I think we, we, we often take for granted on a day-to-day basis. They're the kind of stuff I like to dive into before I start talking about whether or not they want to divest fossil fuels. I think it's important to determine who they are as a person and what's important to them and what they're doing now that's misaligned with that. Um, and as advisors, we can we can facilitate that that transition. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of different parts of the conversation you can go into with a client. <laughs> it could be hours and hours of conversation before they become a client. Um, t- talk to talk to me about some of the stuff the work you've been doing on helping or, or, or determining and, and sitting with the client to to actually work out and choose a portfolio. Because um, I think uh, I think advisors will be wanting to know exactly how you're doing it. I think initially it starts off with a with a conversation of, of what we've already discussed about you know, a greater beneficiary. And then it sort of feeds into, I mean, the first one I always just bring up is climate change and fossil fuels. I haven't had a single client say no to divesting fossil fuels. Um, one, because they actually don't want to be part of the problem. And two, because they're stranded assets and they're bad investments. And I've got all the charts in the world to pull, to pull out to show that. 
So I think between those two things, no one wants to be left holding the bag. But that's more of a stick than a carrot. I think a lot of people just really – I haven't had a single no to, to divesting fossil fuels. So that's always an in straight away, and it's a given. And it's sort of a pledge that I've taken myself at the start of the year that every client would divest fossil fuels over the next one to two years as far as I can, I can start progressing them depending on um, capital gains tax and, and other best interest aspects. But I think that's really, really important. And then we start looking at, you know, I suppose, areas of social um, benefit and of environmental benefit. So life on earth and life above and below water, using the terms from the sustainable development goals, um, as well as, you know, areas of, of, of um, First Nations Aboriginal rights and refugee stuff and, yeah, and, and I suppose areas around poverty and, and social inequality and that sort of thing. I think they start to sort of come out naturally as part of that conversation. I don't think it's necessarily very structured initially. I think it's very, I suppose, it, it flows because you need to, really see they'll bring up what's really important and then to follow that i either use i used to use that checklist that i spoke about the real one um or you know more recently we've been using um our app to sort of determine that and that guides that conversation um in that capacity fantastic and so that means you're working on an app yes yes so ethos is is the app um and the the idea of it is that it it had, takes them through a series of questions so there's the different areas that they can click that are important to them, whether that be you know, gender equality, climate change, life above uh, water, life below water, um, so, you know, that sort of thing. And then from there, they rank the things that are important to them. So they select what is important. Often it's everything. And then they rank the things that are important. And then from there, each of those things dives into the detail areas. Yeah. Okay. So that prioritization takes place and then you can... So tell us about this app, mate. You, is this just for you or can... Can uh, can we all use it? It's it's absolutely available for everyone to use. It's it's a it's a um a soft launch in Australia at the moment. So select few advisors are test running it for me, and we're adding more and more funds to it. Um, because once you've gone through that assessment process, it gives uh, I suppose a persona to your client as to what kind of ethical values they have. And then what we use at the back end is through a number of data subscriptions and and machine learning and data scraping. We're able to analyze individual companies and their scores, build put, and then those companies form parts of the portfolios which managed funds um, and ETFs would have. And then you can then match the client's needs to their portfolio. And through that portfolio, you can say, okay, well, your current portfolio looks like this. It has a gap around climate change. It has a gap around um, reducing inequalities. It has a gap around you know, poverty. And so what we're going to do is research some funds using the tool um, by ranking funds by those areas and find investments that we can then use to match up against your individual values. Um, you could have that, a couple with the exact same portfolio, but completely different answers. And each fund would then be scored differently depending on their values. And so it produces a, a, a comparative and quantifiable, I suppose, answer to can you meet everyone's individual investment objectives, which you, you absolutely, we think we have built a tool that you absolutely can. I was trying to answer the question of how do you quantify a client's ethical investment values and then provide investment advice that both meets those values but has the evidence to back it up. There's so many products out there. Um, it was really hard to ascertain what was good and what wasn't. And I, I found a guy in the States who's been building the exact answer to my question. So for the last few months, my wife and I have been working with him um, to launch that product in Australia. Wow. Sounds fantastic. Now, if somebody wants to get hold of that, I guess LinkedIn is probably the best way to get hold of you as well. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. LinkedIn. I would reach out on LinkedIn and um, and I'm sure you'll see some posts of mine on there anyway related to that and we'll be able to kickstart that. And you're sort of softly launching that throughout the, the, the year, I guess? Softly launching at the moment, um, aiming to have a full launch at the start of the new financial year. So we're just using some a group of advisors at the moment to, I suppose, iron out some of the creases and add in as many funds as we can so that when we do have a hard launch, it's as functional as possible. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, Nathan, thanks very much for coming and chatting to us today. There's so much stuff you're working on. It's unbelievable. The, uh, the, uh, the XY Ethics Committee is obviously a big part of that. And, uh, and again, another shout out um, to all the committee members for, for being involved, donating their time, volunteering, um, you know, helping the, helping the positive evolution of financial advice by, you know, just helping their fellow, you know, advisors make ethical decisions and determination. So that's fantastic. Appreciate you coming on. Also um, uh, sharing your, you know, your investment uh, app that you've created, which I think is, it's a, it, you know, sounds amazing. I'd love to, um, I'd love to uh, see more of it. So uh, look, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, brother. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the XY Advisor podcast. I'm Fraser Jack and I'm joined by Emily Blanche. Hey, Em. Hey, Fraser. How's things? Oh, tremendous. Thank you. Yeah, very, very good. And how are you? Amazing, as always. <laughs> let's do a shout out. <laughs> yes, let's. Today, I want to give a shout out to Steve Salvia, absolute legend who jumped on for an XY Plus web event recently and crushed it. So the topic, which I think is very prevalent for many advisors, was around finding freedom in your business. So putting some practical strategies in place to remove the tasks and the jobs within your business that are uninspiring, they're not the jobs you should be doing, it's the boring stuff, file notes, compliance, everything that revolves around the big ticket items and the stuff that is what advisors get excited about getting out of bed in the morning, right? The client-facing stuff, the communications piece, the, the strategy and building those out. So it was a super valuable, highly interactive session. And the beautiful thing is that it now lives as evergreen content in the XY Plus library. So if you are an XY Plus member, do yourself a favor, jump in and watch the replay. And if you're not an XY Plus member, you can head to the sign-up page, xyadvisor.com forward slash plus. Jump in, join the inner circle and access the entire content library. 